Welcome to The Perfect Storm, a bi-weekly podcast for business executives and cybersecurity professionals. Industry veterans Michael Markulek and Matthew Webster chat with guests about the latest cyber news, threats, and trends, and how all of it impacts their businesses. Harbor Technology Group is a cybersecurity consulting firm that offers advisory services to the SMB. Harbor believes by taking a proactive rather than reactive approach to cybersecurity, business leaders can develop a cybersecurity program that will address external requirements, exceed client expectations, and ultimately take their organization to the next level. Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. Welcome back to another episode of Harbor's podcast, The Perfect Storm. This is Michael Markulek. Today, I have with me Tommy McDowell from from Solarium. Uh, Tommy, welcome. Oh, Michael. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Perfect. So can you tell us a little bit about Solarium and, uh, you know, what you're doing in the cybersecurity space? Absolutely. Um, Our uh, technology solutions, we, we facilitate the cyber threat intel sharing for industry sectors such as the defense industrial base, the automotive industry, and several uh, international corporations and specifically their supply chains. We also uh, provide threat information and cyber defense readiness uh, directions and education material to small and medium-sized businesses. Again, a lot of that focus is on uh, uh, the supply chain and then later uh, this year, last year, actually, January 2020, uh, we partnered with DOD to help build and um, uh, provide training material for the new cybersecurity maturity model certification and the requirements that have to be met by the large number of assessors that DOD hopes to train uh, through beginning this year, actually. Yeah, we're, um, we're actually moving down that path as well as, as, as an RPO. Um, Really, uh, yep, on the, uh, you know, on the uh, uh, pre-assessment side, right? We're not looking to be auditors. We're looking to be, you know. Right? No, Michael, that's a good point. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of the, the training material that we're coming out now, uh, because we do have access to that body of knowledge, we're able to take that material and provide it uh, to, to those suppliers who are, you know, trying to meet those standards, right? So uh, that's, that's a lot of the training opportunities we have now. So it's pretty unique because you get to know exactly what the auditors are looking for as far as evidence and how they interpret, you know, a lot of these practices and controls. Right. And, you know, and it, uh, I'm going to jump into a little bit of the weeds here, but um, one of the things in the, the, you know, the original NIST cybersecurity framework was some questions around supply chain management um, and how you were protecting your supply chain. And I think that was kind of a fundamental shift, especially for small and medium businesses that had never thought about that. So why don't, why don't we use that as a jumping off point to uh, kind of talk about securing the supply chain, talk about it in terms of the original NIST framework, and then we'll kind of migrate into you know, what's going on with CMMC. No, that, that sounds really good. As a matter of fact, that was one of our motivations for CMMC in the first place was that we knew that you know probably 80% of some of the attacks now start in the supply chain. And the impact of the supply chain to business operations, even though it may not be your direct organization, 
that is subject to an attack, a mere supply chain attack could disrupt and disable that mission or, or business function significantly. So when we saw DOD first start to recognize this, especially at the various levels where they really acknowledge the need for using threat intelligence as situational awareness to some of the smaller members. You know, a lot of these smaller organizations don't have the threat intel analyst teams or some of the high-end ways to, you know, curate their own intel, but they do need to uh, take finished intel uh, and, and provide that into their, you know, protection systems and strategies for protection. So we saw that as a key place for us to uh, take our sharing technology and, and mold it for the supply chain, which is a, a different entity than what is typically inside of, you know, an organization, whether that be the prime or, or supplier. Right. And, and you know, we think about defense contractors and, and, you know, that kind of long supply chain, right? You know, you've got, you know, at the top end, the, the Northrop Grumman's and the Boeing's of the world. And, you know, at the bottom end of the chain, you know, somebody who's making a gasket that fits on a, you know, yeah. that fits in a, you know, a, a Humvee, you know, a gas tank sealer, you know, wheel seal or something like that. And all of them, um, you know, originally had the, the NIST 800-171 requirement. Correct. But, you know, with CMMC coming in, you know, I think it's going to be a, a huge challenge. And, and I don't know from your perspective what you think, but, you know, you know 300, 350,000 def defense contractors across the U.S. trying to adopt the same cybersecurity standards, um, you know, Ultimately, if it gets done and it's successful, will be a tremendous, you know, uh, lift for the U.S. in terms of our preparedness. But it is a tremendous lift. No, I totally agree. And in, in some of the latest uh, reporting and conversations with within and without the accreditation body, and even within DoD, as it relooks at the accreditation body and where it is, is starting to recognize that. And even though CMMC was really orchestrated around a, a set of controls for a level one, level two, smaller organization, which really at level one are those old DFARS controls, right? right. And they, they were in all the contracts. So most everybody should have been doing that anyway, not that everyone did. And then when you get to, up to a level three organization, that's where you really start to see the holistic NIST 171 start to come to life. And a lot of the mature process requirements, such as maintaining system security plans and organizational policy and evidence of compliance over time, that, that add-on is a big lift for a lot of organizations that just don't have that in place. Um, so it's gonna be interesting to see as DOD continues their review and where they go with this. We have a, a lot of uh, communication with the DIBCAT and the individuals there that have been doing 171 assessments of corporations on an ad hoc manner for years. And uh, it's interesting just to get their results. Uh, even some of, the, some of the large organizations just have not really had the maturity to implement the, the NIST framework, which we all remember came primarily you know, out of NIST 853 and that entire framework for government agencies, right? So there was significant overhead. Government agencies were able to absorb that private companies find very challenging. Yeah, and, and we see this in our business from the really the bottom end, right? Those those small suppliers, those right. two, two, three, uh, you know, location manufacturers that are making you know, the, the door handle for the Osprey. 
Um, and some of them, you know, we'll, we'll talk the business side here for a second. Some of them are now questioning whether yes. they want to, whether they want to remain defense contractors or not. That's common. As a matter of fact, we have some partners in Europe, uh, uh, several countries with the DMAG group. Those are those 25 countries that help build the F-35 fighter and are wanting to get more business within DOD. And they are saying the same thing is that the local companies, if they have to meet these requirements, then they're going to have to just get business somewhere else. Or those governments will have to go outside their own nationality to partner with others. So it is, it is a, a reality on the ground, so to speak, that has to be factored in. So let, let's take this back to the, you know, that small, medium-sized business user, that, that, that manufacturer that's got, you know, 15, 20% of his revenue is coming from the DOD. You know, what's your advice to them at this point? Um, it's no longer a wait and see. Um, right. we've, been, we've been telling folks, but, you know, what, you know, what are you telling folks today? And, and, you know, what can they expect to see over the next couple of months? A um, couple of things. First, identify what is your protected information, you know, to be within scope. What what is what do we consider that um, uh, the type of information that should be protected, you know, pursuant to CMMC, and where is that information located today? Where is it processed? Where is it stored? Uh, it, it, do you anticipate your ongoing contracts uh, at level one or level three? Where do you plan to be? and look at the practicality of the practices that are identified. Where can these be implemented and within what scope? So one of, one of the key areas that we were really critical of CMMC was there was not a lot of guidance on determining scope, what assets are in, what assets are out. And of course, if you've done any kind of accreditations in the past, that accreditation boundary was very important. So that, that's really the first challenge is to know what assets are going to be within scope and what information do we need to protect and take a look at those level one controls. Those are pretty common sense uh, controls that, that anybody in business today should be doing. And it's, I don't think it's a heavy lift to implement that. Of course, when you get more mature you know, to level three, uh, things get more complicated. Um, however, the common sense application behind them regardless of how you may be measured in an audit, is still a good first step in, in, in moving in that direction. Right. And I, I'd agree with you, the level one controls are, you know, something that everybody should be practicing, whether you're a defense contractor or whether you're, you know, right. an insurance firm or whether you're a small financial services, you know, it, it's just good basic blocking and tackling. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the challenge from what we hear is, the, the 171 controls for you know, organizations that hit, meet that medium definition, um, implementing those controls may not be that complicated. Where it gets a little complicated again is adding the mature practices around it that would demonstrate your compliance. You know, that's sort of the administrative overhead that auditors may expect to see. That's a little bit more lift than just merely implementing the practices themselves. Right. And I, I think that'll be a challenge, especially for the small and medium sized businesses. You know, the, the larger organizations have been talking SOC 2 or right. you know, the DFS 500 out of New York. Um, you know, so they're used to being audited against their uh, security controls and the maturity of those security controls. I, I think for a lot of SMBs, they're just not in that mindset of getting right. audit, of getting audited. Um, 
So, right. And you know what's surprising to us is a lot of the small businesses, their infrastructure, especially IT and support and delivery, is sort of scattered between maybe some systems they host locally to something provided by MSPs. Yep. So in that context, um, you know, where are the MSPs in providing, meeting these requirements for processing that data on behalf of one of those customers? So the extensiveness of this tends to spread and makes it a little bit more complex to get your hands around. Yeah, talking about the MSPs and the supply chain, right? We, you know, we recently saw the, uh, the, you know, the Kaseya uh, yes. incident, right? So yeah. if, if, if you ever wanted to look at the supply chain, right, there's a, a very basic example of making sure that your supply chain is protected. Um, and even MSPs that are good, and there's a lot yes. of very good MSPs out there, you know, we're hit with the Kaseya vulnerability. You know, what is really interesting, even if you go back to solar winds, right, the recent one there is these new attack trends. And yes, we've known for a while that the weakest link, of course, is what most of the bad guys go after. So if you're in a what we call an enterprise supply chain, which is really a bit more of the DOD model where you have a prime, prime and subcontractors, that relationship, no doubt. And if you can uh, attack one of those smaller, you can definitely uh, cause degradation and lack of business and other issues to the supply chain as a whole. But on these recent attacks, it's really interesting because the bad guys were able with SolarWinds, you know, to hack into a, a tool that has a large distribution base, right? So once they got in, they were able to embed into that communication path and then launch their payload. And with one, a lot of little effort hit a large number of companies. And here we see the same thing, you know, a, a different tool, but the same strategy. So we're trying to extrapolate from that to the bad guys are learning how to make one strategic punch that will give them a large payload or an attack surface and avoid detection and hit a large number of people. That's sort of the same framework as the supply chain. So don't be surprised if these bad guys start looking far now your relationship in the supply chain, the way you communicate with that supply chain, other key systems that support supply chain management if they can get into that context. So you're right, it's a very alarming where this is going and these are very difficult to detect. Yeah, extremely difficult to detect. And I think just scratching the surface, right? You know, you look at, you know, you look at Colonial Pipeline and, and don't wanna go into a lot of detail, but we have a lot of aging infrastructure. We have a lot of, you know, what I, you know, internet things, IOT that's yeah. connected to these legacy networks that is extremely vulnerable, right? There's, and there's, I, I talk to folks in, about, you know, making sure that they're not on Windows 7, right? There, there's still folks out there running earlier versions of Windows in some of these, um, you know, manufacturing facilities or, you know, managing a set of IoT devices. So it's going to be a challenge. You know, I, um, right after 9-11, had an opportunity to really embed uh, in building cybersecurity uh, programs for critical infrastructure in the Western U.S. These were primarily in power generation distribution systems like Hoover Dam, Grand Coulee, and then spent the next 10 years really in the power generation uh, domain and saw the evolution of that. But even now, you are correct. A lot of the embedded devices take a Windows CE or a, a small version of an Linux operating system and embed that in a device. Those systems can't be updated. They're not built to do that. They're built to serve one particular function. So when you try to approach that with a traditional hardening type capability or some of the kind of controls, it's just not there. 
And you're right, the concept behind a control system, control systems are built to last decades, not just an 18 month life cycle. Right. So, and it's more, and, and the embeddedness of software is just one part of it in the firmware. So it's a totally different mindset and culture, you know, to try to embed in, uh, but you're absolutely right. And, and that continues. Luckily, you know, through, through some of the work, those systems have been isolated to some degree. And I think some of the more critical ones with the NERC SIP standards and the other kind of, you know, requirements out there have forced the industry to move. But that is a large uh, infrastructure, a large attack surface, like you said, and it's just very hard for organizations to even get their hands around the complexity of some of those systems. So let me um, pivot a little bit here. Um, we've talked, you know, CMMC, we talked about NIST, we've talked about a lot of the regulations uh, out of the federal government. I mentioned a couple, you know, uh, DFS, Department of Financial Services out of the state of New York, you know, Cal Privacy that came out uh, a little bit about 18 months ago. Do you see any trends in terms of regulation, right? You know, is the federal government going to eventually standardize some of this or is it going to continue to be, you know, a state by state, agency by agency, you know, kind of uh, program? That's a really good question. And a couple of thoughts is we've heard a lot of adoption of CMMC, at least conceptual adoption beyond DOD from DHS to including into some of the the um, uh, new STARS contract vehicles and some of the federal government contract vehicles. So that sort of methodology, at least tying it to a ward of a contract is sort of a new step that a lot of people seem to be moving toward. I totally agree with you. I think one of the things DOD is looking at right now is uh, should we just stick to the NIST framework and controls that are already identified in 171 and 172? Do we need these additional 20 controls, for example, that were added by the, the accreditation body at level three? Is there a better way we can consolidate this? And you're right, it makes it very complex when, when you have to go to a state or, or a company that has multiple jurisdictions and compliance mandates. And sometimes a typical mapping uh, isn't, isn't perfect, right? Because the language is interpreted different, the measures of compliance are different. And, and Michael, the overhead of managing that is significant. And, and that really impacts a company's ability to manage risk versus managing the impact of the audit. <laughs> right. know, in the early days, I, I would say the largest risk would be that you would be shut down because of an audit. <laughs> Today, that's not the case. But it, it, it is still something that's very much in the minds of, of business owners, you know, uh, instead of really managing risk of the org from a cyber standpoint, they tend to uh, look at the risk of being audited and fines and penalties therein. Hopefully they produce this in the same direction, but it is an issue. Back to your question, I, I hope we move into that direction, but I just haven't seen it mature there yet. Uh, you know, every legislative, um, um, incumbent or other wants to get their name on a piece of paper with another bill because <laughs> it looks good, but we got to do more than pass more law. <laughs> you right. know, we, we got to do a little bit more deeper and make things so people can understand it and implement it with, without, because like you said, a lot of the companies, they just don't have this expertise. They want to get to the bottom line. What do I need to do and how do I do it? Yeah, they, and they, don't, they don't have the expertise and, and they get a little confused, right? You know, you know, I just looked through uh, US FDA, 
I guess it's uh, Section 21, Part 11, which to me looks a lot like NIST 800-171. And that may be a lot of gobbledygook. You know, that may be a lot of acronyms for folks on the, 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 the listening to the podcast. But what you have are two standards from two different agencies that are, that are maybe not 100% identical, but are covering the same thing, right? You know, protection of, uh, of information. And, and, you know, I thought I was hopeful early on that the NIST cybersecurity framework would become that, you know, that gold standard, right? Would become the, you know, 140, 150 control lines that every organization had to adopt. But as you just, you know, articulated, every legislative body wants to add one or two of their own and subtract one or two that, you know, maybe their constituents don't want to comply with. So it, it's becoming difficult to, to kind of navigate the uh, regulatory world. It, it is. And there's a significant impact, not only to what is actually implemented, but the flow and structure inside an organization. For example, in the critical uh, infrastructure industry, you know, the NIST framework, uh, the NIST 853 controls were adopted. Matter of fact, I worked with Ron Ross and others to write NIST 882, which took 53 and applied it to the control system industry. So those controls are very tailorable, you know, and they can be moved. But the same thing happened when you move from a NIST-based, risk-based approach to implementing security to a compliance mandate. Instead of having a risk-based approach where you have CISOs and others managing risks to the business, when you move into the compliance world, that conversation goes down the hall to contract people and legal. And then you're in a different domain of conversation about security and risk and the impact to the org. It changes the quality of that conversation. And that, that to me has been very confusing to a lot of industries and not, not to mention the overhead and cost with it. Yes, has it forced people to move in that direction with better security? Probably, but it comes with a cost in doing so. Great, and I wanna circle back to Solarium and, and your business. Um, if you would, for me, just kind of summarize, you know, I think you did it at the top, but I'd like a, you know, maybe a finer point on, you know, how you're helping businesses address this, you know, compliance entanglement, um, especially in the supply chain, right? Because I know that's a, a, a critical part of your business. Yeah, a part, the biggest part of our focus um, in the compliance world is with uh, CMMC, right? So, you know, of course, in that context, we stood up uh, over a year ago, the CMMC Academy, which is an online portal that is free. Uh, companies can, can join that. And we built a really common sense orientation uh, to the um, CMMC standards. Instead of looking at one 300 page PDF, you can go into our portal and easily navigate. Uh, we've added a lot of best practices and commentary. We have a large number of videos there with people like Katie Harrington and others that have been involved in the delivery and interpretation of CMMC as it's rolled out. And in doing so, we, we established a community and also saw an opportunity for us to help you know, develop the training material and distribution of that. So that that's, is really one of the big steps that, that we evolved into. Our his, historical approach has been providing, like I said, the threat intelligence sharing platforms for some of the larger ISACs, such as the National Defense Industrial Base and the automotive industry, as well as others. And so we saw the supply chain 
as another area where the sharing of threat intelligence could be advantageous to both the primes and the suppliers. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because where you have a prime and a large number of suppliers on one mission to provide a service, if one of those suppliers are degraded by an attack, then that affects that whole mission as a whole, right? So it just makes sense that threats to one of you may be affecting threats to the other. So how do we improve that collaboration? How do we give you tools to keep up with the latest intelligence? And, and we do that by way of having uh, certain types of Intel feeds we make available to these members. And we try, to, we try to really target that medium to small business that doesn't have threat Intel analysts sitting around curating Intel or doing lookups and enhancing um, you know, IOCs and IOA capabilities. We're going to people that don't have that. They want the bottom line. So we go at great lengths with the Intel to make it relevant and simple so that a sysadmin or, or someone else serving the role as security or compliance could implement those, those practices. And within what we call the cyber defense network, it's really, which is really the solution we have for uh, a prime and its suppliers, we add a lot of capability in that, such as monitoring stolen credentials on the dark web of your suppliers. You know, could that be an indication of, of some type of risk to the supply chain as well, including small business improvement programs, like how to install MFA or some of the other type of, of passwordless type devices and things like that we research. So we try to make that entire experience a little bit more um, uh, manageable and, and rich. And what we're doing right now is looking at, at ransomware. You know, how can we provide a better unpacking of ransomware other than what you get in the press, you know, and from online so that you can understand everything from the attack vector to, to how, it, how it may spread and then what systems are actually affected. In many cases, what we see is the prime may not be affected, but you can have one or two suppliers that are. And then once that collaboration starts to place and having conversation, you quickly realize there's other dependencies across your supply chain, or there's other common systems uh, that may need to be tweaked or updated. So it, it ends up to being a really value add to have a community like that. And, it, and it's a community of trust. It's not like you have to go back to a, a company who, uh, as me being a, a former auditor, you know, I, I would often go infiltrate some of those companies and go look and see who's talking about the problems they're having. And that would give me an indication. So I'm sure the bad guys are doing the same thing. Right. So this trusted network gives you a place to openly discuss, um, you know, issues that are occurring and, you know, interpretation, maybe better ways we can tweak things. So it's, it's an incredible value uh, capability to build that collaboration space. As a matter of fact, uh, we just had a conversation last week with um, one of our one of our participants with the retail ISAC, and um, and they were having a conversation of all the indicators that are shared, and the attack avenues and things like this. It is so important to have that collaboration capability there, and that collaboration. We have many ways to do it, a very secure way to do it, and so I think that's sort of helping move this conversation you know, a little bit forward down the road. So we're getting a lot of success in that domain. And the other thing too, I'll, I'll throw out there is, is the traditional supply chain approach. Mostly it's been a prime with suppliers and you may have those suppliers fill out a checklist or uh, indication of how we secure our interrelatedness. You take on a different view when you start to look at the supply chain as its own entity. 
How do we secure this entity? What is the risk to this entity? And then you start to see things a little bit different. Maybe some of those technical controls you have in the compliance framework that don't apply, but the risk approach, the operational approach, the strategy behind it takes on a different point of view. And that's a very interesting uh, avenue. Uh, and it's one we're trying to educate, um, uh, frankly, a, a lot of the business environments, because a lot of that, you know, you may have business owners that look at the supply chain from one perspective that may not have been looking at it from this cyber risk lens, so to speak. Yeah. And instead of just throwing it to the security guys, you go handle it. Now we're trying to raise that issue a little higher, you know, to say there, there are things you can do to manage risk at this business layer, you know, that could have a direct impact on your business should, you know, some of these attacks, uh, you know, materialize. So it's a, it's a different avenue, but one we think has some, has some legs and some practicality behind it. Yeah, I, I really like the the peer to peer, you know, information sharing. Um, you know, I, I know that the federal government has had dozens of initiatives around, you know, public private partnerships. Um, and, and, you know, the hopes are always high that delivery is, uh, is, yep. is never met those hopes, to be quite frank. So hopefully we, we get that. And, you know, hopefully through your organization, um, more and more organizations, more and more individuals can become part of that information sharing network, because I think that's the key, right? You know, making sure that we have the information out because my supply chain touches your supply chain, touches you know, exactly. somebody else's supply chain. And, and one breakdown, one breakdown in that chain, um, and, and we're all at risk. You're totally correct. And uh, that we see that as one of the the next generation steps to improve is what is that better partnership between the role of the federal government who has the resources to, to identify, monitor, and respond to international threats versus a lot of the local governments that do not. And how can they get that information down to suppliers and others uh, so that they can act on it accordingly? No doubt, uh, I've seen a tremendous improvement in this over the last three or four years. Uh, but it still has a way to go. And you're right, Michael, it's that trust between the two. It's good to get one way direction of sharing information, but it's got to come back, you know, uh, from the government as well. And that piece is just not, it, it's better. It's no doubt it's better, but, but not, not to where it really needs to be. Great. Well, it's, it's a beautiful, a beautiful day here in outside of Princeton, New Jersey. I'm wearing my Jimmy Buffett t-shirt. So I'm going to get to my final question. <laughs> we, we ask all of our guests to kind of give us your, you know, your beach resort, your, you know, your little one particular Harbor, you know, your, uh, your spot that you, you just like to go to and do a little bit of relaxing. And, you know, if you can throw in a, you know, a place to grab a good burger and a recommendation of a cocktail, we always appreciate it. Hey, this is an easy call. Manly Beach in Sydney, Australia. Every February, that's the open uh, Australian Open of surfing, and it's and it has this large strip of beachside cafes, bars, restaurants. There's the Ivanhoe Hotel, Hotel Stein. There's the Manly Wharf that overlooks the Sydney Harbor. Large number of restaurants right there, and my favorite, the Four Pines Brewing Company. I just thought that was interesting that they had a four pines brewing company where I never saw a pine tree the whole time I was in Australia, <laughs> but it sounds good. And the beer was great. So excellent place to go. 
Well, I don't know. The Rugby World Cup is in Australia in 2023. <laughs> so that, I'm, I might have to put that one on my list. I would. I actually like Manly Beach. Some people prefer Bondi Beach. You know, they're different, you know, different kind of crowds. But, you know, just, man, beautiful places in the world, you know, if you get an opportunity to be there. All good. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Um, I look forward to maybe having you back again. I'd really like to delve into some ransomware kind of conversations, but I I do want to keep it timely for our uh, listeners today. Hey, we'd be glad to. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. We would also like to thank Tom Marshall for the original music. Yes, that Tom Marshall from Fish fame. Harbor's portfolio of services is designed to meet the cybersecurity needs of small and medium enterprises. We offer a range of services from cyber risk advisory to VCSO consulting to meet specific security requirements without putting a strain on your technology budget. If you like what you heard here, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. We release new podcasts every other week and are available on Spotify and Apple. You can reach us through our website if you have additional questions or suggest a great harbor we should mention on our next show.